coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. So our message comes to us this morning from the book of Ezra. Now Ezra was a scribe, meaning that his job was to record and to copy, as well as to interpret the first five books of the Bible, also known of, of course, as the Law of Moses. Ezra was believed to have written, obviously, Ezra, as well as Nehemiah and First and Second Chronicles. Originally, these were all one enjoined book, with, we believe, Ezra as the recorder behind them. And yet mainly though we remember Ezra's name because he was a priest who was very instrumental in the people of God arriving at a rekindled love and devotion towards the Lord. The book of Ezra describes Israel leaving their captivity behind in Babylon as they make their return to this brand new beginning of opportunity back in Jerusalem. Well, the book of Ezra begins with something that was absolutely unimaginable to the people of God living in this time, where Cyrus the Great, who was a pagan king in Persia, he rises to power, he conquers Babylon, now now he is the premier conqueror and emperor in that time. And it says in Ezra chapter 1 that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus because, well, God can do anything especially work through a pagan king, as we know all across Scripture. And so Cyrus stands before the Israelites, and he's, he issues a proclamation to them. He says that the Lord, the God of heaven, has spoken, and now you are to go home. Here's a little bit of money. Go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then what follows in Ezra chapter 1 is that it says, and then the heads of the people of God rose up because, after all, God is the lifter of our heads. And God, once again, raises the heads of his people. Now, all of the Israelites do not return home immediately, but a group, at least, returns to Jerusalem. 50,000 exiles, give or take, return into Jerusalem. And then it is in Ezra chapter 3 where a where a groundbreaking ceremony for the brand new house of God is underway. And so I read in Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals. And they praised the Lord according to the directions of King David of, King, um, um, David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so for the first time in 373 years, a foundation is laid for the new house of God and for a temple in Jerusalem. And I mean, we we have to understand this is a very big deal. 
Because to these Israelites living on this other side of the cross, that building, that was where God was. They believed that that temple was the only place where authentic sacrifice and worship could be offered. So for all of those years that they are a thousand miles away of what is now modern-day Iraq, they felt like this is the absence of God. God is nowhere near us, and we are nowhere near God. And so this is really the significance of why a new temple needs to be built in Jerusalem. So this is a very emotional moment that we're reading about here. It's been 59 years since they had been forced marched out of Jerusalem into Babylon. It's been 48 years ever since the original Temple of Solomon had been burnt and decimated to ash. And as these people praise God, I mean, they are, they are just delirious with elation. We aren't in Babylon anymore. We survive to tell the story. And it says that as they are worshiping God, that it's just shouts of joy to the heavens. As they return into Jerusalem after being in Babylonian captivity all this time, they are returning with brand new hearts and brand new eyes. So as they worship God, there, there are all of these tears of, of joy and happiness. And yet there were also tears of sadness and tears of heartbreak because in verse 12 it goes on and it says, Yet many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the very first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this new house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of the weeping of the people. And so what is going on in the text right here is that these, these are the people who were old enough to have seen Solomon's first temple sparkling in, in all of its grandeur. This is the exact same temple King David sang about and, and that the Israelites sang for generations as they went to a feast every single year. Psalm 122 and verse 1, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. For our feet are in your house, O Lord God. And yet now, all of these years later, they are standing in that exact same space, but it's just this gaping open wound in a dilapidated wasteland. So yes, there is a great deal of excitement as they get to return, but when they actually get there, it's like, oh man. What happened to our city? And just laying in ruins. I mean, it is a bit of a fixer-upper, as they like to say. And so as everybody is celebrating the, the construction of temple number two, those with these older eyes that are mentioned, they notice that it is strikingly smaller than the original temple was. As it's going to be built up soon, it doesn't matter because it's, it's already inferior in their eyes. And yet I think that there is a lot more to their tears of sadness, though, because, well, the ghost of a thousand memories is calling to them from every direction in the air. 
they have vivid memories of walking into that old temple with their father, with their grandfather, with their childhood friends, and many of them are processing these people have been dead for 30, 40, 50 years now. I think also what they are thinking is that, you know what, even if it were 10 or 20 times larger than Solomon's temple, it really doesn't matter because Solomon's lampstands, the Ark of the Covenant, the manna in the jar, all of it is now gone. And so it is impossible to restore this to its original glory. But I think especially what it is for these older men is that their very last memory of being in this place, standing in front of Solomon's house of God. It was the horrors of exile, where they perhaps relived the mass starvation that had ensued, and the cannibalism that we read about in the book of Lamentations. Husbands being separated from wives and children being separated from mother and father. And so as they're standing there at this groundbreaking ceremony, they begin weeping aloud as if they were grieving the loss of a loved one in their family. And in a sense, they were grieving the loss of a loved one. They are grieving their past. They are hopelessly trying to restore a stolen childhood where, where the prime of their life had been snatched out of their hand and now they lived all of these years and all of the years of their energy and youth as slaves in Iraq. Yes, they're there, and yet they're not there. It may be true that their, their feet have been standing in there in that modern time, but their hearts and their minds were, were far off into the past. You see, they have a very emotional, sentimental attachment to Solomon's temple. And I mean, who can blame them? This was all these people ever knew, and they, they are clamoring for it. And yet obviously what the problem with that is is that you can't turn back the hands of time you know, 40, 50, 60 years. There is no time machine to just magically go into and to be transported back to the good old days and to the good old times. So it's like, well, it, you know, this is a nice effort. It really is, but I mean, what's the use? Why even bother with this brand new temple? We're, we're just wasting our time. Well, the prophet Haggai, he, he sets their hearts at ease. And in Haggai chapter 2, he says over and over again, he says, hey, you be strong. And you, you over there, you be strong too. Be strong because God is with you. God's Holy Spirit is with you, and so do not fear, he's saying to them. And yet then in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 9, though, the prophet, or really God through his prophet, says something that was absolutely unimaginable to their ears. As God announces his, his pronouncement to his people in Jerusalem, and he says that the glory of this new temple it's going to be far greater than even Solomon's temple was. 
And in this place, God says, I am going to give you all of this peace that you are hungering and thirsting for. In other words, what God is telling his people is that I am about to move into this brand new temple. And as long as God is dwelling in a place, that is all that really matters. Because everything else is just bricks and stones. It's not about the architecture. It's not about any dimensions on a blueprint. God's presence is the sanctuary. God himself is the temple and the sanctuary. And then we come to the year 515 B.C. And at last, temple number two is, is devoted and it is now open. And now temple number two is here. And I mean, can you even imagine what that first Passover was like? I mean, it's the very first Passover in Jerusalem inside a temple since the exile. I mean, do you think that it was a little bit emotional for these people? Do you think that there may have been a little bit of exuberance in the air that was not there that last Jerusalem Passover? I mean, this is 80 years in the making. We're talking about three quarters of a century of, of emotions of tears, of, of sadness and trauma and anticipation. And now what they're sensing is now we are reaching our crescendo as a nation. And sure enough, in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 22, it says there that they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with a spirit of joy. And you see, this is what happens when we learn to live in the present moment when we savor what God has placed in our hands right now in this moment in time, and we live right now rather than in the past or in the future. You see, when we have this kind of attitude, we live in a constant state of celebration and worship. Well, we fast forward about 550 years and in this very same city of Jerusalem, we, we walk into a building, into what is known of as the upper room. And there we find that very first time that the disciples of Jesus Christ are all praying together after his ascension back to heaven. And so we see the now 11 apostles, and they're praying with the women and with Mary and with Mary's other children. And as they had prayed together after Jesus had ascended into the clouds, I, I imagine that there were many tears of joy and happiness. Where now we see the resurrection is beginning to make sense to them now. They're connecting dots that they were not able to connect long before. And I mean, these are men and women who have brand new hearts and brand new eyes. Where it's like Jesus is alive. Jesus was dead. We, we saw him crucified, but we just saw him alive. We spoke with him, and I mean, we reached out and we actually touched him. We had breakfast with him over by the sea just the other day. So there are tears of, of happiness, but I imagine that there are also tears of sadness as well. As Jesus was lifted up into the sky and he vanishes into the clouds, I, I imagine that these guys are like, what, oh, what does this mean? 
Like, what just happened? Now, not long ago, Jesus said that he was not leaving us, that he was going to still be with us. We trust that that he's going to keep that promise that he made to us. But I don't understand all all of this. I, I, I don't get it. Has Jesus abandoned us? And where is this Holy Spirit that he promised he would send? I mean, it's it's been over a month now. Maybe they looked in that upper room and they remember Jesus sitting right over there as he broke bread at the Last Supper, as as he commemorated his, his communion feast, as he reached down and he washed all of their feet in the upper room. And it... You know, it was just so much better when Jesus was visibly here and we could just reach out and touch him. Yet now it's just not the same anymore. And yet there is something that is very ominous on their horizon, though. Now you may remember how just before Jesus was was arrested and he was crucified, Jesus is coming out of um, a temple number two with his apostles, and one of them looks at this brand new renovation being made by King Herod. And he says, Master, look, what wonderful buildings and what wonderful stones. And again, he is making reference to all of these renovations that King Herod made to um, um, Temple Number 2, where he made these enormous add-ons onto the building. And it had these ornate cream-colored stones to where as the sun had reflected off of that temple the daytime, it generated a blinding, luminous light. Now to this generation living in this time, temple number two was where God was. This is the exact same temple where Jesus once told Mary, did you not know that I, I must be in my Father's house? This is the exact same place where Jesus is is making reference to as he says that my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all of the nations. And so one of the apostles says, do you see all of these great buildings and these stones? And, And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? And that's because not one stone is going to be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, Jesus made it very clear, and they're going to know this eventually later on, that that very soon Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again. As we know, this time it's going to be the Romans who do this. And so Jesus is like, you see this great building? You see these great stones? Well, enjoy it while you can because it's going to come crashing down even harder than it did in 586. Well, as the followers of Jesus cry out to him and they're all praying to him there in the upper room after his ascension. Temple number two is 37 years away from destruction. But something far more important and consequential is going to happen before that very soon after in Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost, The apostles at last are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had said. Thousands of people hear the the message and the gospel of Jesus. 3,000 plus have been baptized into Jesus. His church is established. His gospel is going out all over the earth. 
And it's then when the Apostle Paul says something to, to a little house church in Corinth. They were a very deeply divided bunch. And so he's warning them about destroying the unity that, that Jesus prayed so fervently that we would have. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Do you not know that the Spirit of God resides and it dwells within you? And then again, he speaks to the lack of unity in this church as he says that if anybody destroys the temple of God, God will destroy them. And then especially I want to emphasize this, where Paul says, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. That is what you are. You are the holy temple of the Lord. You are temple number three, in other words. You have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, holding temple number three all together. There was a time when God's people looked at Solomon's temple and said, this is the house of God. There was a time when they looked at, at temple number two and said, this is the house of the Lord. But now in this Christian age, even though all of those other temples had since long since been ripped apart and destroyed, there is a third temple. There is a temple number three, and Jesus is looking at you, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, you are that temple. This is your identity. This is who you are. We could put it on our driver's license. I am the temple of God. King David saying that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And you and I seeing that I was glad when they said to me, let us be the house of the Lord. As we see in the book of Ezra, as well as in the memory of the disciples there in the upper room after the ascension right before Pentecost, Spiritual reunions evoke the tears of gladness as well as the tears of melancholy in the same spirit. And yet the good news is, though, is that God is far closer than we could ever dare dream. And that brings us to you and to me this morning. Because this is the very first time that, that everybody in this room has been together in a worship service in person in a year and three months. I mean, we've got to understand this is a very, very, very big deal. We have spent four and a half seasons, two Easter's, worshiping in our houses. For the very first time in the history of this congregation, this auditorium has sat empty week after week, Sunday after Sunday. And after everything that has happened in this past year, we are, we are all coming back into this place with brand new eyes and with brand new hearts. I don't know about you, but I have had tears of happiness here this morning. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me so much of when Amanda and I return to America from a year in China. I'll never forget where we went to a worship service in America for the very first time. 
We're taking communion with, with my mother and father, with my grandparents and with my brother and with his wife. And, and I just had so many tears in my eyes, just, just a pure happiness. That there's no longer an ocean that is separating us any longer. And for the first time in a year, we were sitting inside an auditorium and we were hearing people praising God in our native language. I mean, for one year, we had sung in Chinese, Ni Che Da Mu Zha, Sheng Ming Da Zhu Zha, Wada Mu Ren Ren Do Wu Shen Yi. But now we are hearing God's name being praised in the English language. And I just got choked up and I just couldn't hold all of, my, all of these happy tears back. Well, this morning there may be tears of relief in your eyes as well as we have returned because it's like we're all together again. We survived to tell the story about 2020. And I mean, in so many ways, we are now on this brand new phase of this new era of of, of, of revival and possibility. I mean, you can just feel it in the air this morning. And yet, as spiritual reunions have a tendency of going, though, there may very well be also tears of sadness here this morning, too. I'll never forget how when we returned to America from from a year in China. It was, it was now a very strange thing sitting inside American auditoriums and cathedrals rather than Chinese living rooms and Chinese apartments. We were finding ourselves being very shocked and at times even angered and offended by many things that we never had the eyes to ever notice until we had left America and had come back. In China, when we spoke about Jesus, what the response was, tell us more about this Jesus. I mean, they just had this childlike, unquenchable desire to know Jesus. They were willing to risk, to risk life and even freedom living the Jesus way in the world. And every Sunday morning, we would sit in a small circle wearing shorts, wearing t-shirts, taking our communion in hushed voices because we knew that at any moment in time our doors could be barricaded and Chinese feds could come swarming in with machine guns. And after a year of that, every single day and every single Sunday, we get back to America. And we hear multiple people in a congregation saying that that we should meet together less, not more, but, but we need to spend less time with the church. There was another person who approached a minister in that church and said that if you can't say everything that you need to say in 15 minutes, then you're saying way too much. In other words, we want you to tell us about Jesus, but not too much. I mean, let's not go, go crazy here. Just, just a little bit of Jesus to get me through my day. And at the first two congregations where I went to, had a person who told me that you've got too many wrinkles in your shirt. <laughs> As if I'm at a country club or something and they have a dress, um, um, dress code to uphold. 
I spoke at another church where I was also known and many people were like glaring me up and down, I guess, because I wasn't wearing a three-piece suit on a Wednesday night. I don't know. I thought I was dressed very, very good, but I guess I wasn't dressed good enough. And little by little, so much of what I spent my whole life thinking was a church's relationship with Jesus Christ was actually a relationship with a cathedral, with a man-made building or a temple, with all of these unwritten rules and with ritual above sacrifice. And on that very first service that we went to in America, I was asked to lead a closing prayer, and I got about ten words in, and, and I began weeping aloud on the microphone. And perhaps even as we sit here this morning, rejoicing that we have returned, Maybe your heart is a little bit sad this morning too. I mean, there are people in this congregation who have been here since, since the Vietnam War. There are some of you who grew up in this auditorium. You remember when this, this auditorium had been packed to capacity on Sunday morning, and when you praised God, you would blow the roof off of this auditorium. You can remember when every single classroom inside this, this um, church building was brimming with life and with the sound of children's laughter. And yet we take a long look around here this morning and the hallways are quiet and in a devastating way. All of our classrooms sit empty this morning. And perhaps as we sit inside this auditorium this morning, we we can't help but notice vacant spaces where, where not that long ago loved ones of ours sat right here in front of us. And all of this is just a gaping open wound within us. Well, our encouragement here this morning is that whenever the people of God had been displaced or, or not where they wanted to be, God revealed that He was much closer to us than we ever could have imagined. And if we will learn to live in the present moment and to savor what God has, has placed in our hands, we will celebrate with shouts of joy in the days ahead. Well, once Ezra had reached Jerusalem, what he does is he leads the whole entire nation and the whole entire people into a brand new redevotion towards God where he reads the, the whole entire law of Moses aloud to them all over again, and they, they learn about God all over again from scratch. In the book of Nehemiah, it says that as they, they hear Ezra reading to them the words of God, that they began weeping aloud, because they recognize that, that we are not as a nation what God intended us all to be. God has kept covenant with us, but, but we have broken covenant with Him. We have not been delighting in His ways. And so they all decide that we are going to approach God in, in, um, in sackcloth and in fasting, and we will actually put it in writing that, that we will be faithful to our God now. And isn't any wonder that what had followed after that was, was, was really one of the greatest revivals that Israel had ever seen. 
So as we close this morning, I just want to invite you, and I want you to also likewise invite me to the following. And that is to just simply let this past year change you. Never forget this past year. Let it lead you into a deeper, into a a much deeper pursuit of Jesus. Do not resist these brand new eyes and brand new ears that this past year has given to us. Where perhaps every single Sunday from here on out, before we get out of our cars, that, that we just stop for a moment. And that we mentally and spiritually process And you know what? This is something so sacred and so special. When I walk inside there, I'm walking in there to honor and to worship Jesus Christ. And I am also to honor and to love everybody who I'm going to see more than I could ever love my own self. This is such a privilege. This this is why I exist. And if each and every one of us will live like that, with those kind of attitudes, there is going to be a revival in this church like you will never believe. Two years ago, my, my, my dad and I returned to the church building where I grew up going to. Spent my whole entire childhood there. Well... There had been a church split there many years ago and the church building had been sold and it went to many um, congregations and churches many times over. It changed hands countless times. And in the years after that, I would often go back to all of these unusual churches that I never knew anything about. I used to go inside at their services of various kinds and I would just sit down and just cry my heart out. Because as I said, I mean, this was where I grew up. That was where my older brother had baptized me. This this is where I preached my very first sermon. Then all of a sudden, I find myself sitting in there as a complete stranger. As all of these people up on the stage are speaking in these fake languages. (laughs) Wailing and, and crying aloud in fake tongues. And I was completely lost and disoriented, like, man, I, I feel like an exile in Babylon right now. And yet two years ago, though, as my dad and I sat there together inside that place for the first time in 20 years, I noticed that I was no longer held captive to any kind of attachment to that building any longer. And that's because, after all, God's presence is our sanctuary. And Jesus is saying to you and he's saying to me this morning, and that sanctuary is you. This is who we are. And everything else is just bricks and concrete. We are God's holy dwelling place. Never, ever, ever forget. We are God's temple, number three.